Welcome back to the Indian Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, you are looking for wisdom teachings, accessible, entertaining, informative, inspired wisdom teachings, which you can apply to your life. Actually, applying wisdom teachings to your life is precisely the topic of today's transmission. Why should these teachings be relevant? Why should they be practical? Isn't wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom something esoteric? Is it not to be pursued while cloistered away from the world? Well, certainly, Indian wisdom traditions hail from ascetic renouncer traditions. In ancient times, in the centuries leading up to the time of the Buddha, maybe 8th, 7th century BCE, before the Common Era, we have this radical shift happening across the Indic world. Now, we really have no way of knowing for how much longer prior to this that these shifts have been in place, but we are aware that they occur at this epoch because of the textual evidence, because of the composition of the prime wisdom texts, the first wisdom texts that we see in ancient India, the Upanishads. By wisdom texts, what I mean to say is that these were the texts geared towards waking up, towards illumination, towards transcending the mundane, towards escaping the wheel of rebirth propelled by the principle of karma. Indeed, these are the first texts wherein we see this very samsaric, cyclical worldview where individuals are born again and again and again in various bodies to exhaust their karma. This is a topic for another day. It's a rich and profound avenue of discourse, karmic theory. But let me just say that we don't have karmic theory in the ancient, ancient Vedic hymns, in the Indo-European traditions. This is actually a new worldview that becomes the dominant worldview, presumably because of how compelling it is in terms of explaining the human condition, in terms of why certain people have certain patterns, connections with people, some relationships we um, invent, we create, and certainly we, we all experienced the fact that some relationships we discover, they're already there. Now, whether or not one believes in karmic theory or reincarnation or samsara, you know, that's neither here nor there for the teaching at hand. It's just important to realize that this entire worldview has a beginning. Yes, it comes from Upanishadic Hinduism, ascetic renouncer traditions. That is, ardent seekers, virtuosos, spiritualists, who decided to eschew the world in pursuit of wisdom, in pursuit of enlightenment, in pursuit of waking up. The early Upanishads actually hotly critique the dominant religiosity of the day, i.e. Vedic religion. And this critique uh, was so trenchant that entire movements broke away entirely with the Vedic fold, stemming from this renouncer 
religiosity. Some of these traditions survive to this day. The most popular of these would be Buddhism and Jainism. These all stem from renouncing traditions. Unlike Buddhism and Jainism, which break away entirely from the Vedic world, we have the Upanishadic traditions, we have um, Brahmanism folding back in this very important spiritual ethos, this ethos of asceticism and the pursuit of waking up and liberation. Now, are these not at odds? Is life in the world looking for comforts and satisfactions and goals, is that not at odds with life in pursuit of truth, life in pursuit of liberation, of waking up, right? In other great world traditions, we have, for example, monastic traditions. Uh, for example, in Christianity, there are many orders of monastic traditions where individuals are cloistered, they may renounce um, partnership, renounce parenthood, renounce vocation, renounce uh, earning a living, etc., etc., monks, nuns, etc., etc. But in Indic traditions, what we have, although we do have vibrant monastic traditions within the Indic world, what we have is that ascetic ideology the wisdom of the ascetics folded back into the world. What do we mean by that? Well, there's this little text called the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> I'm sure this will not be the last time you touch on this text. Um, it's a rich and glorious work. It's, it's a literary masterpiece, actually. And the Bhagavad Gita is such that um, there's a profound conversation that occurs in the middle of a battlefield at a time of war. Nothing is more pragmatic and worldly and mundane than a warfare. And yet, the ancients have seen fit to place this profound spiritual wisdom in the trenches, so to speak. Many of you will be well aware of the frame of the Bhagavad Gita where the great um, archer, <laughs> Arjuna, is riding in his chariot, and his charioteer is Krishna, his cousin, his friend, oh, and God incarnate, actually, which he reveals through the conversation of the Bhagavad Gita. Very famously, Arjuna asked Krishna to drive their chariot between the two armies, and the armies are armies of vying factions of the same family. So it's well aware Everyone is, is well aware of who is fighting whom and why. They have been trying to sue for peace for months. They've tried everything. And they've realized that there is no resort left but warfare. So it's not as if this is the first time Arjun is confronted with the reality that he will need to fight his kinsmen. But knowing it intellectually and knowing it experientially are very different. So while faced with his kith and kin amid the opposing army, he laments. His senses dry up. Yes, he's, he's, he's racked with anxiety, depression perhaps. 
He's pained. He's full of angst. His great Gandiva bow drops from his hand. And he slumps down in his chariot and he says to Krishna, I will not fight. And Krishna, his cousin, his buddy, his charioteer, says, what's the matter with you? You man or you a mouse? Something along those lines. Actually, probably a little more harsh. He says, look, what are you, a eunuch? Man up, you know. This is the hour of war and you're a great warrior. You're trained for this your whole life. And Arjuna says something very, very interesting, much to the point we're trying to make today. He says, look, I will not enjoy any victory that results in the annihilation of my kinsmen. I cannot eat food smeared with the blood of my kin, of my own gurus. How can I fight these men? How can I fight Bhishma and Drona, these venerable gurus of mine who've taught me everything I know? They happen to be on the opposing army. He says, nope, I'm going to do the right thing. Arjuna says, look, uh, I've read a bunch of, of Indic wisdom books. I've listened to some podcasts. I've watched some YouTube videos. And I'm well aware of this paradigm of the renouncer. I'm going to renounce. I'm going to take a begging bowl. Better to take a begging bowl and do the right thing, do the dharmic thing, than to engage in this terrible, wretched enterprise of war. And Krishna, here, he peeks out from beneath his cousin cap <laughs> with a twinkle in his eye. And he says, Arjuna, you know, much like many of these, these, you know, these YouTube talking heads, you say the right words, but you're a parrot. You're parroting wisdom, but you're not really wise. How does Krishna know this? Well, Krishna continues to say to him, Krishna's very smart, obviously. He says, you're not wise because you're grieving, because you're upset. Where there's lamentation, there is no wisdom. And where there's wisdom, there is no lamentation. Krishna goes on to say, look, the wise do not grieve for the living or for the dead. Why? He says, never was there a time when I was not, or you were not, or these lords of earth were not. And never will there come a time when we cease to be. Wow. Dizzying. You know, Krishna's panning from camera one, ensconced in the enterprise of war, to camera two, where there's more expansiveness, where there's space to contemplate existence. Or is it where there is the assertion that we are more than we think we are, more than these minds, more than these bodies, more than these actions in which we are ensconced, more than the mortality that we identify with. He's panning to camera too, because there is no Indic wisdom without this grander perspective of samsara, of the cycle of rebirth, of the machinations thereof, of your place therein. Yes? Upanishadic Hinduism, or ascetic ideology, in the Indic world is predicated upon the realization that we are trapped in the cycle of rebirth. And therefore, the prescription provided is breaking free, waking up, getting out of here. 
moksha, liberation. We have to find a way to bring together the dharma, i.e. the conduct, the righteousness, the virtue, the code, the dharma of world affirmation from Vedic thought, and the dharma of world abnegation, the dharma of asceticism from Panasharic thought. I call this the dharmic double helix, these two strands woven in as if a single um, entity, but they never really touch. This, this tacit synthesis of world affirmation and world abnegation. And it's Krishna's job, as it is the Mahabharata's job, to find a middle path where you are in the world, but not of the world. Where you are called to engage the world, but not to be consumed or destroyed or deluded by it. Really, what the Bhagavad Gita is advocating is a third and potentially higher path. Yes, we'll talk about these three paths in a moment. Let's just pan back to camera two, where <laughs> Krishna is describing the cycle of rebirth. He says, never was there a time when I was not, or you were not, or these lords of earth were not, and never will there be a time when we cease to be. And so the wise do not lament because they know this, and you lament, and therefore you are not wise. He is endeavoring to encourage Arjuna, inspire Arjuna to take up his bow and perform his duty in the world. Now, throughout the Bhagavad Gita, there are a great many teachings on the subtle workings of reality, spiritual truths, esoteric truths. But at the end of the day, all of the esotericism, all of the spirituality, all of the metaphysical discourse is being leveraged so as to encourage Arjuna to engage his physical, social duty in the world. This is very, very important. The world is not an obstacle to waking up. The world is an instrument to waking up, provided you have the eyes to see, provided you're able to navigate it with a little bit of discernment and awareness. This is a really important idea that we see uh, throughout the epics. We have the pendulous sway of these, these, these kings, these aristocrats who who move from the center of society, from, from the, the royal courts, from the throne, and, and they're thrown into the forests uh, amid the ascetics and the beasts to learn. And we have this, this movement where they experience forest exile, <laughs> crucial to their training. They come back and they rule. And we have this, this weaving of the Dharma double helix that is expressed uh, in the characterization of ascetics and kings and their interactions so in, in in throughout the epics we have this bringing together of world affirmation and world denial the synthesis if you will and this continues throughout the piranhas and perhaps it reaches its height 
in a really fascinating and profound work that is part of the Puranas. The Puranas being the compendia of, of, of mythic and miraculous lore, if you will, uh, histories uh, of kings and, and sages and magical things, uh, stories of creation and recreation of the cosmos, right? This, this vast corpus of, of lore, of Indic lore, right? Now, to my mind, part of the purpose of the Puranas is to bring us back to the worldly. Yes, not to dispense with ascetic ideology, the pursuit of moksha, spirituality, but to nevertheless uh, reassert the world as an extremely important um, uh, enterprise, a, a locus wherein we work out our karmas. Yes. Now, there's this really profound work that is part of the Puranic corpus called the Devi Mahatmya, the glory of the goddess. It's the only work, well, the first really, wherein we see a great goddess, the divine as a she. There's much to be said about this work, and we'll be touching upon this in subsequent episodes without question. But one of the most profound features of this work is that it presents the ultimate ontological principle, the supreme, the divine, is not separate from physical reality, the world, the cosmos, but innate to it. The divine, the goddess is hymned as she who abides in all living beings in the form of hunger, thirst, loveliness, etc., etc., etc. And so we see this very important move in the Indic world towards world affirmation, but mindful of the wisdom of asceticism, of renouncer traditions, walking through the world, but being mindful to subdue one's senses as much as possible, being, being mindful to steer clear of the pitfalls of prakriti or material creation. But for the wise, material creation, life, if you will, the circumstance in which you are, right? The experiences which you will encounter, the patterns that persist about you and within you, right? Nature, prakriti, life. It is, for the unwise, a trapping. Yes? For the unthinking, Material creation is where we perpetuate our patterns. And most of the time, those patterns are detrimental. Where we perpetuate and further ensconce our bondage to those patterns. Yet, for those who are paying attention, for those who are alert, life is laden with life lessons. We have this beautiful expression in English, life lessons. What does that mean? Well, when you pay careful attention to the experience of life lessons, there's so much presumed therein that life somehow is capable of teaching you, that you are capable of learning. Now, this isn't about information. This is about transformation. This isn't about putting factoids into your current perspective. It is about entirely shifting your perspective. Certainly, if you look back five to 10 years, 
you will notice behaviors and perspectives that you've outgrown. You see more clearly now. You see more deeply. You've gained understanding. You've learned life lessons. And life lessons are learned by engaging life. And so on the one hand, we can think of life as the locus of enticement, of enmeshment, of bondage, of delusion. And yet the same series of circumstances that we encounter, if encountered with attention and intention, can actually be the very stepping stones to growing, to learning, perhaps even to waking up. This is an important and profound idea. The idea that life is here to teach us what is beyond this material realm. And in order to learn that, we need to undo our learning in a sense. We need to relearn what it means to exist. We need to relearn who and what we think we are how to relate to others, to self, to the world. Now, I want to share a little story. Last week, I shared a story about Ganesh and Kartikeya. It happened to be the first story uh, that I shared in the stories behind the poses. And there was a great deal of um, uh, <laughs> warm uh, and fun feedback, um, favorable feedback <laughs> pertaining to the storytelling it is clear that there are those among you who enjoy a tale or two, and who am I to deprive you of such? It just so happens that the tale I will tell to illumine this principle happens to be the final tale of the stories behind the poses. I suppose we're commencing the podcast with the alpha and the omega of the stories. I encourage you to listen to the tale. If you'd like, perhaps you can read along or read it some other time, but I encourage you to just allow yourself to be drawn into the story world because it'll have, it'll have the power to really shape and transform you if you allow it. And all you need to do for that to happen <laughs> is to relax and enjoy a ride on the magic carpet. In ancient times, there was born to a Brahmanical lineage, a great sage. And the sage studied the Vedas, the Vedic revelations. Yes, the ancient Vedic holy texts. He studied the Vedas day and night. He sacrificed the pleasures of life and social relationships to devote himself to studying the profound wisdom of the ancient texts. By the end of his life, after decades of dedicated effort, his learning was great indeed, but it was not complete. So upon passing away, he was reborn again. Remember, we talked about the, 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 the machinations of samsara, of cyclical existence, of the, the, the principle of karma. That ensures that as you sow, so shall you reap. But the reaping cannot possibly be done in a single lifetime. And so subsequent lives are programmed for the reaping. And so too are patterns or vasanas carry through from life to life. Yes. So 
Upon passing away, he was reborn again into a Brahmanical lineage of great repute and was again afforded access to Vedic learning. He brought with him in the second life all of the instinctive knowledge and momentum of the previous life study. And unconsciously, you know, there's so much that we unconsciously know, isn't it? Unconsciously, he knew his learning was incomplete. So he redoubled his efforts. He sort of sensed he was on a mission to get this done, to learn as much as he possibly could. So he redoubled his efforts in this second life and studied passage after holy passage, day and night, memorizing the entire Vedic revelations and gaining insight into these sacred scriptures. As all creatures' lives rise and fall by the wheel of samsara, the second life too came to an end and he left his body to enter another for a third incarnation. In this third life, the sage was ablaze from a very young age with a passion for Vedic learning. Reborn again in Vedic circles, he was a child prodigy, astonishing adults with the knowledge he possessed. As unassuming as, unassuming as children might seem, they may in fact possess lifetimes of training already. You know, have, have we not met children who are bizarrely and strangely and charmingly wise or skilled for their age? We're, we're, many 10-year-olds are 10-year-olds, and some 10-year-olds are 40-year-olds. <laughs> We've all met such children and such such people at various stages in their life. Yes. Perhaps it's such that they have learned life lessons previously that others are currently yet working on. Yes. So he kindled this fire throughout his life and lived and breathed the Vedic revelations, learning them, knowing them backwards and forwards, inside and out. By the end of this life, he was confident that no living soul knew the Vedas better and that his task was complete. He had mastered the Vedas. And so, of course, he thought to himself his training was complete. So, on his deathbed, he concentrated on the supreme, on the divine, so as to access the heavenly realms. The great god Shiva, the great ascetic, the great yogi, <laughs> Yogeshwara, Vashupati, the lord of beasts, appeared before the sage. Noble sage, great is your learning indeed. You have in fact been studying the Vedic revelation with passion and dedication for the last three lifetimes straight, where you see Shiva had access into you know, the karmic account. I suppose he pulled up his iPad and looked, called up the man's account. With this, the Lord presented the sage with a handful of dirt and said, this represents learning you amassed in your first life dedicated to Vedic learning. The Lord then presented a larger handful of dirt and said, this represents the learning you amassed in your second life. Shiva, Lord Shiva, then presented the sage with a brimming handful of dirt, scarcely one that could scarcely fit within his grasp. <laughs> And this great sage represents the learning you have amassed in this third blessed life of yours. The sage was so content with a smile upon his lips, he said, Now that my learning is complete, great Lord Nilakanta, O blue-throated God, will you take me to your celestial abode? Beloved sage, these fistfuls of dirt represent the learning you have amassed. And if you gaze out the window, and gaze upon the mighty Himalayan peaks. You will behold the vastness 
of all you have yet to learn. The sage was aghast. Oh, great God. I've devoted myself to Vedic learning for every available minute of my life. I have eschewed relationships. I have eschewed children. I have eschewed vocation. I have eschewed earnings. So as to avail every possible moment to study the Vedic texts. What more could I possibly do to master the Vedas, Lord? Are you sure you wish to know the answer, noble sage? Yes, Lord, please tell me. And I will do everything in my power in my next life to complete my learning. Dear sage, in your eagerness to cloister yourself and assimilate the sacred verses of the Vedas, you have yet to learn how to share the wisdom they contain. This world and all of its social interactions is the greatest wisdom school ever created. <laughs> the dean is actually my divine consort, Prakriti, Parvati, the Holy Mother. Life's lessons are learned while interacting with others, and even knowledge is crystallized when spoken aloud and shared. This is where your learning lies, great sage. And then your soul's journey will be complete. With this, the Lord smiled, and with a twinkle in his eye, he vanished. Contented by the divine revelation, the sage passed away with a smile on his lips, intent on applying what he had learned in his next life. In the following life, his soul was born again to a great Brahmanical lineage. He was actually born as the great sage Bharadwaja. Bharadwaja was of an exalted lineage indeed. He was the son of Brihaspati himself. Brihaspati was the priest and counselor of the gods, greatest of gurus throughout the Vedic skies. Brihaspati was also available to counsel and console all who came to him. He was blessed with great compassion and great empathy, profound emotional intelligence, the ability to see through the eyes of others and thereby prescribe the requisite wisdom so they may move forward in their journey. Under the, the influence of such a great exemplar, of such a skilled father, Bharadwaja soaked up all he learned, not merely divine grace, but social grace. He became a great teacher, and his fame spread far and wide. Maybe he even set up an online wisdom school, who knows? And he expounded the teachings of the sacred Vedas for all to hear, for of what use are these teachings not shared? He found the sharing of knowledge to be quite fulfilling, and it brought him unparalleled joy, Ananda. At the end of that life, he was granted release from rebirth, having learned both his lessons in the Vedas, as well as those that a worldly life presents. Now, after each tale that is told in the stories behind the poses, um, there's a little bit of gloss applying tale, uh, drawing out the emotion and spiritual truths, and applying it to the, the relevant asana for those interested, the yogic posture. There's no need to be particularly interested in the postures per se, but nevertheless, this gloss will illumine the central themes and thrusts of this current wisdom transmission. And so it is as follows. 
Embodiment is not an obstacle to divinity. This is really important. Yes, there's so many traditions across the globe which problematize and demonize the embodied state. Okay, this body is a gift. Embodiment is not an obstacle to divinity. It is an expression of it. Wisdom, in a nutshell, is is sensibly, wisely navigating this world. It's navigating this world with the awareness, perhaps, of what is beyond it. Wisdom doesn't require us to eschew the world. Right? The ancient Indic teachers and sages learned this through the profound cross-pollination of Vedic and ascetic ideals. Right? This is the very dharmic double helix that is the DNA of Indic thought. This is what is spun through the Bhagavad Gita. Yes. The wise are called to affirm the world. This is really important, especially in our times. This earth in particular needs to be respected and affirmed, does it not? There'll be future transmissions on the power of these teachings for ecological enterprise. Allow me to continue with the gloss. The wise are called to affirm the world while, of course, refraining from becoming fully enmeshed within it. To my mind, and I've said this to various clients and students over the years, there are overarchingly three types of lives. There are lives of the vast majority of people who are mundane in their bent. They're here to sort of uphold the status quo in a sense, and they're here for mostly mundane enterprise. They're looking for um, certainly careers, um, children, spouses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. There are those who eschew the world. They're sort of spiritual virtuosos. Some of these succumb to escapism, to my mind, but some of these are really and truly ardently aimed at spiritual purification, whatever that looks like, from whatever religious tradition they hail. And there are those who, assuming samsara, perhaps they've had renouncing lives in the past. Okay? But there are those who have the muscle mass of renunciation, are able to embody, imbibe the spirit of detachment, and wisely, sensibly, centeredly navigate the world. Interestingly enough, the podcast is affording me the opportunity <laughs> to provide a gloss upon the gloss. Allow me to continue reading the gloss. Okay. The wise are called to firm the world while, of course, refraining from becoming fully enmeshed within it. Nothing is worth having if it isn't worth sharing. Purpose in this world. Purpose. What is purpose? Dharma. Dharma is a rich and profound word. It relates to the ancient Sanskrit word rita. Uh, the cosmic rhythms, the, the, the cosmic order, the Tao, if you will, the sacred order. Dharma, to my mind, is that which upholds, upholds in a noble sense. It variously means virtue, righteousness, duty, justice, merit, morality, purpose. It is unwise to pursue your purpose, lest your purpose be wedded to some greater purpose, morality, virtue, dharma. Purpose in this world is defined by service to others. 
Okay. Whenever I facilitate folks finding their purpose, typically through one-on-one um, counsel consultation, one of the tools that I call to mind is this Venn diagram of purpose is sort of the overlap of everything you're really, really good at, that which you really, really enjoy, and that which others really want and need. It's a little more complex than that, but nevertheless, that is an important facet of purpose. Purpose in this world is defined by service to others. Imagine the impact you have when you teach what you know. And the transmissions ripple down, touching life after life, illuminating situation after situation. This was the wisdom Bharadwaja needed in order to multiply his fistfuls of dirt to become akin to the Himalayas themselves. Now, this tale in this gloss is told for a yogic posture named after Bharadwaja called Bharadwajasana. Okay. It requires a bit of a twist and a facing backwards. And so I continue in the gloss to say, sometimes you will need to twist and change directions to get where you need to go. You may be so focused on the goal ahead that you forget to look back and appreciate the people, places, and things, circumstances, the lessons you are leaving behind. But take this abdominal twist as a chance to look in your rearview mirror and to wring out emotional blocks. Take the opportunity to recalibrate your vision Sometimes looking back is the way forward. Now, it is my intention that this transmission be an ode in homage to embodiment and world affirmation. To share the wisdom of revering, of valuing this embodied state, this planet, and life on this planet. This is crucial, particularly in these times. Now you can look forward to more similar wisdom transmissions, weekly wisdom transmissions on the podcast. I'll also be having some really fascinating guests that I'll be interviewing. Maybe I'll even let them interview me, you will see. But we'll have some great conversations and I will be inviting some students at some point so we can have real live teaching moments and tutorials for you to listen in on by all means, um, reach out if I can be of service in any way. Um, I actually run an online uh, uh, learning platform called the Indian Wisdom School. I'm available for consultation, um, for presentations. Certainly, if you have a question, you can get in touch and I can send you some resources or answer it as best as I can. I'm here for your service. I hope that these transmissions are of use to you. And if there are requests, um, for further transmissions of a particular type, by all means, reach out. Till next time, keep well, keep listening, keep learning, keep applying what you've learned. Have a look at your life and perhaps adopt, rather than the lens of things happening to you, perhaps adopt the lens that things are happening for you, for a purpose, for your learning. Perhaps the most powerful frame through which to view experiences is this. What am I called to learn from this? Until next time, keep learning. Namaste. Namaste.